Welcome to Daily Power Parsha. Today is August 19th, 2021, and it's great to see you all to study some Torah. We're going to cover this week's Torah portion is Kitetse. We're going to cover readings number three, and, sorry, readings number four and five to get us all caught up. Okay, readings four and five. I'm going to share my screen with you, and let's jump right into the fray. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse number 8. You shall not despise an Edomite. Okay, that is the opening drop of a mitzvah. You shall not despise an Edomite. Why? For he is your brother. What does that mean, he is your brother? So Edom, the nation of Edom, or Edom, but Edom, comes from Esau, Esau, who's the brother of Jacob. So we are the children, B'nai Yisrael, the children of Jacob, Israel, right? And they are the children of his twin brother. So we're cousins, right? Essentially come from brothers, twin brothers. So the Torah says, do not despise an Edomite, for he is your brother. And, and this is the real kicker, you shall not despise an Egyptian, for you were a sojourner in his land. You dwelled, dwelt. You stayed in his land. You were in the Egyptian lands. Therefore, you shall not despise an Egyptian. That sounds kind of crazy. You shall not despise an Egyptian. You were, it sounds like they hosted us with like um, the fine china and the good, the good cutlery. I mean, it sounds like, oh, they rolled out the red carpet for you guys. The truth is they did initially. Um, they did initially. Life was good in the time of famine. Egypt took us in, well, because of Joseph, but Egypt did take us in. So we were protected. And the Torah is telling us you have to have hakar satov. You have to have um, acknowledgement and gratitude for one that's done right by you. Somebody does something good for you. All right. Now, it turned really bad. It got really bad. We even have a holiday called Passover to celebrate getting out of that place. Nonetheless, nonetheless, the Torah is almost telling us Moses is speaking to the people, right? And Moses saying, right, speaking in, you know, in, in, in the name of God, so to speak, that we have to be able to separate. Sometimes, going back to last night's topic in Torah studies, sometimes we have a tendency to cancel, right? Somebody does something wrong, canceled. What about the good that they've done? Canceled. Everything is canceled. Done. And the Torah is saying here, not so fast. Yes, they did a lot of things bad. They were punished for it. Right? They were broken as a nation. Ten plagues and the whole, the whole nine yards. Ten plagues and nine yards, right? But you, they provided shelter for you when times were a little bit, when times were difficult, when there was a famine in the world. They were the ones that took you in. Don't hate them. Don't despise them. So be able to separate the good from the bad. Because to be honest, Maybe we're not on that level, like Egyptian slave enslavement, but we all have good and bad. And we know what it's like when somebody mixes it all together and says, well, if you're not perfect in that area, then you're completely dismissed. That doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good. Because we each know our mindless and chastrenous. We each know that we have um, assets and liabilities. We have virtues and vices. But to be, for our virtues to be dismissed just because we have vices doesn't feel fair. 
Okay, so then don't do it to the Egyptian. That's one insight. Second insight, a little bit different, I mean, along the same lines, is even if they did wrong by you, as long as you despise them, as long as you hate them, you're not truly free. As long as you are holding on to the hate, I can't believe it. As long as you're the victim, you remain victimized. And I know it's easier said than done. And it comes, it could sound, you know, like out of touch and insensitive. And I'm, I'm not trying to say anything insensitive at all. I'm trying to explain a deeper idea of this. This is Moses who was living at that time, speaking to the generation that, okay, they were the second generation, but their parents were the slaves. And he was saying, look, for your own well-being, it's good to let go of the hate. Because as long as you're holding on to hate, you are not free. What do they say? Resentment, might as well um, replace it with hate, is like drinking poison and hoping the other one's going to die. If we're bitter, it hurts us. It hurts us. You, uh, me being bitter, has that ever hurt someone else? No. 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 Right? It hurts me. And ultimately, it keeps me shackled. If I can't move past what the Egyptians did to me, you know what that means? I'm not free. And Moses is telling the people, you want to be free? Don't despise the Egyptian. This is perhaps, I'm about to say, this is a hot take. I'm about to say something daring. This is perhaps the most important verse in the entire Torah. Or right up there. This idea of letting go of hate. Because as long as you don't let go of hate, you're still being victimized. You're not free. You have nothing. When you let go, when you can let go, when you can recognize, look, that person did something wrong and it hurt me, but I'm moving past that. And it doesn't say forgive the Egyptian. It doesn't say, you know, um, you know, create a party. Don't hate because as long as there's hate, there's no freedom. You're still stuck. A powerful lesson as individuals, Communities, cities, nations, etc. Hate never is um, a positive end to this. Okay, chapter 23, verse number 9. Children who are born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of the Lord. That means that if someone from either Edom or Egypt converts to Judaism, so they cannot enter the assembly, they cannot marry in immediately, but the third generation already can marry in. Next. Okay, so that is, that closes out that conversation. We're on to the next mitzvah. When a camp goes out against your enemies. Okay, here we go. When a camp goes out against your enemies. In other words, a, an, a, a military camp, an army camp, a, a, you know, a section of the army. You shall beware of everything evil. Okay, be careful of anything evil. What does this mean or, or why? Rashi says, for Satan, Satan, 
Satan accuses in times of danger, and thus extra care must be taken in time of war when danger prevails. So at a dangerous time, for example, war, Satan, the prosecuting angel, is extra active, and thus we have to be careful not to do anything to give that angel any provocation or any justification to do something not good to us. So that's verse number 10. Verse number 11, if there is among you a man who is unclean because of a nocturnal emission, he shall go outside the camp, he shall not come within the camp. So this is now, I'm hearkening back to laws that we read, I believe, in the book of Leviticus about ritual purity and impurity with regards to human beings. This idea of, uh, of a man, a male who has a nocturnal emission, becomes impure. And thus, there's this idea of going outside the camp. Um, let's pull up Rashi. Rashi explains what camp. By the way, um, Rashi says, Scripture speaks in terms of that which usually occurs. In other words, it's not exclusively nocturnal. It's just more common that that's what, what happens. So emissions usually occur at night. However, the law applies equally if it occurs during the day. That, that's a, a note. Let's continue. He shall not come within the camp. What does that mean? Rashi explains. It's a negative commandment, and it means he is forbidden to come within the camp of the Levites, and all the more so to the camp of the Shekhinah, comprised by the Mishkan and its courtyard. And I hope you remember that when they would, when they would encamp in the desert, the tabernacle was in the middle. Surrounding the tabernacle were exactly were the Levite families, and surrounding the Levites were the Israelite families. And so the message here, not coming within the camp, doesn't mean you're ostracized from your own tent. It just means you, can't, you cannot go into the Levite. You can't pass the border or the boundary into the Levite area, certainly not into the inner circle where the tabernacle is until you become ritually purified. Right, which is the mikvah. That's the next. That's the next verse. Verse number twelve. And it shall be towards evening. Basically, wait a day, and then toward evening he shall bathe in water, and that means mikvah. And when the sun sets, he may come within the camp, not home. He was already home. It means he's now allowed to go into the holy camps, the Levite and the tabernacle camp. Does that make sense? Of oh, that makes sense. Okay, let's look at Rashi. Toward evening. He should immerse in the mikvah close to sunset, since he does not become clean without the sunset. So even if he goes to the mikvah, let's say 7 p.m., he has to wait till sunset, let's say 8 p.m., in order to officially close out that level of impurity and, um, and, and be welcomed back into the holy camps. So basically what we're talking about here is not being banished from the Jewish community. No, that's not at all what it's talking about. It's talking about not going to the temple or not going to the Levite area right outside the temple in a state of, um, of ritual impurity until one waits a little bit of time, goes to mikvah, sunsets, good to go. Let's, let's continue. Um, let us continue. Hold on. Where are we here? Okay, verse 13. And you shall have a designated place outside the camp. 
Hold on. Give me one second. Okay. Um, you shall, the Torah says, you shall have a designated place outside the camp so that you can go there to use it as a privy. What is a privy? A privy is, my understanding, um, not privy to all translations, but my understanding of this word privy in this context means a, a toilet, essentially, or a place to, to go to the bathroom. So you should have a designated place outside the camp. Now, this outside the camp means, let's see if there's Rashi to clarify. Um, outside the camp should mean outside the entire camp. This is not outside the inner camp. This is outside even the outer camps. Right, as Rashi says, outside the camp means outside the cloud which surrounded the camp. That means outside, yes. Is the cloud go from exile to Egypt until entrance to Israel? The cloud yes, is always yes, exactly. The cloud was with them from the Exodus until all 40 years. Exactly, yes. Um, the clouds of glory were in the merit, I want to say, of Aaron. And then when Aaron passed away, they, they came in the merit of Moses. Miriam, in her merit, the well of water came. Moses was the manna, the food, and, and Aaron were the clouds. And Kabbalah gets into the, the significance of why these three miracles with these three individuals, etc. But anyway, the point is that when a person needs the bathroom, they should go outside the camp. Now, you might say this is basic hygiene, but there were many civilizations that, that, didn't, that didn't follow these rules. And unfortunately, it, uh, it caused health issues. I'm not saying it's only health, but it sounds like that's uh, certainly a, an, a, um, a benefit of this. Let's, let's continue verse 14. And you shall keep a stake in addition to your weapons. And it shall be when you sit down outside to relieve yourself, you shall dig with it and you shall return and cover your excrement. So basically, the stake is used, stake, a shovel, whatever, to dig and then cover when you need to go to the bathroom. And that should be outside the camp, not in, in the middle of the camp. The rationale here is not about disease and hygiene, although that's certainly true, but it's about a spiritual cleanliness. For the Lord your God, verse 15, goes along in the midst of your camp. God is with you to rescue you and deliver your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp shall be holy so that he should not see anything unseemly among you and would turn away from you. Basically, um, it's, it's kind of like our homes. You're supposed to put up a mezuzah on every door of the home except for the bathroom because it's not a holy place. It's not like a place where holy things happen. It's a place. It's a bathroom. It's, you know, so... The idea here is that the, the bathroom in this outdoor encampment should be outside the camp, not right in the middle. Why? Because Hashem is here. God is with you. So if God is with you, so then put it outside. That's the core idea. 
Let's continue. Let's continue. Verse 16. Again, we get a lot of different mitzvot in this week's Torah portion. So we're moving. This is great for people that like a lot of variety. Here's more variety. You shall not deliver a slave to his master if he seeks refuge with you from his master. Powerful uh, verse. Imagine a slave runs away from another nation. Like a refugee, essentially. Somebody who's been enslaved, persecuted, and he runs away to safety to the land of Israel. So what's the halakha? What's the law? So the law is you don't return the slave to his master, to the former abuse. You don't do that. Rather, verse 17, he shall be allowed to reside among you. Look at that. Wherever he chooses within any of your cities, where it is good for him, you shall not oppress him. Look at that. Here we have the Torah's compassion to the refugee. Somebody is little, why do I use the word refugee? Hello, verse 16. Someone who seeks refuge, you might as well just call him a refugee. Right? That's literally what it means. If you have someone, and this is, just, okay, the, the context is slave to his master, but it means somebody is being subjugated and persecuted and harmed physically, emotionally, whatever it is, and now he's seeking refuge, you have to take him in. Do not oppress him. Okay, so those are the laws. Let's take a look, see if there's a quick Rashi on this, 16 or 17. Um, okay, fine. Let's continue with verse number 18. There shall, be, there shall not be a prostitute of the daughters of Israel, and there shall not be a male prostitute of the sons of Israel. Okay. So the idea here is that uh, that's not something that is holy for a holy people. 19. You shall, although it's interesting because the word that the Torah uses for prostitute is Kadesha. Kadosh means holy. So it literally is a word that connotes holiness. So it's explained in some, in some, in some commentaries that it shows us the power of things. The holier something is, the holier something is, the more energy it has, and therefore the more susceptible it is to being um, misappropriated, if we were to use that term. So the holier something is, the more energy there is surrounding the experience, and the more vulnerable it is to, let's say, corruption, so to speak, negativity. And so no, no different over here. We're saying the idea, intimacy, human intimacy is like such a, such a holy, potentially holy experience that it has a lot of energy. And therefore, there could also be a negative form of this. And Okay, so that's hence the deeper idea of why that word is in Hebrew, the Kadesha, Kadosh, etc. Ray, hold on, you're muted. I just asked you to unmute. You got that's it. That's feminine. What would be the masculine? Kadesh. Kadesh. Okay. Yeah. yeah got it. Kadesha and Kadesh. Again, typically these words mean holy, like Kiddush, yeah. right? Kadesh, uh, right? It's, but in this context, it, it means, this is what it means. 19. You shall not bring a prostitute's fee or the price of a dog to the house of the Lord your God for any vow. Because both of them are an abomination to the Lord your God. So basically, ill-gotten gain, so to speak, or something that 
Mechir um, Kelev is like basically money that comes from from ways that are not so holy. It's not not the right thing for a donation to the temple because it's not not a thing. Now, what is Mechir Kelev? Why is it abomination? Let's see if we have some Rashi on this. Um, One exchange a dog for a lamb. The lamb is unfit. Oh, here we go. Here we go. It's not money. I'm sorry. Let's see Rashi. A prostitute's fee. What does that mean? For example, if one gave her a lamb as her fee, it is unfit to be offered as a sacrifice. Okay. You know, this is different currencies. There's cash. There's lamb. There's... um, Bitcoin, perhaps, or there's different different currencies, and this is a lamb, so it becomes unfit for sacrifice. And then it says, if one exchange a dog for a lamb, here's the here. Oh, now it makes sense. So a dog you cannot offer as a sacrifice. Let's say someone traded their dog for a lamb. Can you now take the lamb that you got for the dog and offer it as a sacrifice? The Torah says no. Why? Because it was not ill-gotten gains. I said ill-gotten gains before. That was more of the first example. This is more of the dog wasn't kosher. The lamb is, but you got the lamb because you gave a dog. So it's almost like the, the lamb is predicated on the dog, which is not, nothing wrong with the dog, but it can't be brought as a sacrifice. So therefore, since the foundation is an animal that cannot be sacrificed, so therefore the, the, the swap, the trade also cannot be used as a sacrifice. Does that make sense? To me, it makes sense. Hope that makes sense. Um, okay, here we go. Let's toggle Rashi off. Let's get back into our text. Yes. Um, in both my notes, and this is what you just said, uh, they say they don't mean that money paid. Correct. Be, it's just the animal, just the animal. Why? Maybe because money would have a different status. Look, you know, money you can't offer as a sacrifice either. So money, so money would have to be converted into an, to, to purchase an animal, and then the animal would be brought as a sacrifice. That's very different than the animal that was literally given for for something that was again that was not per um, Torah's values. Absolutely. Right. So something that's directly given for that, or something that's directly directly traded. For non-kosher animal, it doesn't make sense that that animal itself should be offered. But if you get money, so imagine again, I'm not advocate, right? So something is done, uh, right? And but then it was money, and then the money was used for something else. Maybe because it's another step removed. Maybe I, I I hesitate to give you something definitive. But in my head, you have another generation, another step from the money to the sacrifice. Then if it's the direct payment or the switch, okay. Um, say it again, say it again. There needs to be a degree. Right. This gets back though to a question that we once had in our headlines course, if you recall. I think, Mark, you were there. And, Ray, possibly you were there also as well. We did a headlines course on, on lab-grown beef. And one of the questions we asked was, what about Bernie Madoff when he gave charity? Do those charity back in the day, do those charities need to return the money that... He gave them because they were ill-gotten gains. The conclusion was complicated, but I think the ultimate conclusion was they don't have to, but they, but maybe they should anyway. But that was, 
at the end of a long and elaborate discussion, which may tie into this case, where the money is, you know, there's a few steps in between the final result, then the question is, does that change the status of something being, you know, unholy or forbidden? That's a longer conversation, but I just, I'm just thinking now, just on the fly, I don't even remember that conclusion, because it's been like, I don't know, three, four years, maybe four years, but nonetheless, it kind of, I think it relates at least loosely. Let's continue. Ari, it seems that uh, the charities did not need, need to give the money back. Okay. Is what you yeah. I believe I believe that's what it was also yeah but I can't tell you exactly the whole it was a, we had a long class on this and and various sources I can't I don't remember the exact process of arriving at that conclusion but that was nonetheless the conclusion all right let's jump back into verse 20 you shall not give interest to your brother which means to a fellow Jew no giving interest whether it be interest on money, interest on food, or interest on any other item for which interest is normally taken. So if there's interest, I'll give you a sandwich today, but you got to give me two sandwiches tomorrow. Okay, you can't do that. I don't know that anybody would do that today. But if that were a thing that was common, you wouldn't, allow to, you wouldn't be allowed to do interest to your brother. However, verse 21, you may, however, give interest to a Gentile. But to your brother, you shall not give interest. In order that the Lord your God shall bless you, in every one of your endeavors on the land to which you are coming to possess. What does that mean? That sounds so um, prejudiced. Oh, to the Jew, you know interest, but to the non-Jew, yes interest. What does that mean? We have to start from the, from, from the other side. Interest is normal, right? It's normal that when you lend money, you take interest. The Torah is saying to your mishpacha, don't. Right? Not, not to your family. Business is business, but family is family. So, look, should we ideally be family with everybody in the world? Sure. Sure. But I'll tell you this. If a parent comes and says, I love every kid like my child. I don't love my child any more than any other kid. Sounds maybe interesting, but lots of eyebrows and red flags are going to go off. It's like, whoa, whoa, hold on. You mean there's no way that you love your kid more than than that other kid? And I know it says love your neighbor as yourself. As yourself. It's healthy, it's healthy to love your family a little, to be committed to your family a little bit more than the other one. Even if it's only because by divine providence, those are the people that God has put in your immediate circle. So by divine providence, it means I'm supposed to love everybody. But God has created the scenario where these are the people in my immediate surroundings must be I'm meant to focus my core attention on them. It's healthy. So the Torah says, you're allowed to charge interest, no problem. But to your family, don't. And when you don't, even though it's normal to charge interest, but when you hold yourself back and withhold yourself from charging interest, then I'm going to bless you. Then I'll give you extra blessings. Let's continue verse 22. When you make a vow... Yeah. Didn't Esau get this? The soup and a blessing. Esau asked Jacob, asked for what he was cooking. Esau asked Jacob for what he was cooking. He gave him the lentil soup, and he gave him the blessing. Yeah, they switched. That was a switch. I don't think there was interest there. Yeah. Verse twenty-two. When you make a vow to the Lord your God. Ah. 
When you make a vow or a pledge, you shall not delay in paying it. Right? This is rabbis love trotting this out in high holiday appeals. I'm kidding. Right? So when you make a vow, you shall not delay in paying it. For the Lord your God will demand it of you. And it will be counted as a sin for you. Okay, let's see if there is... Let's check out this Rashi. Um... What does it mean, delay for three festivals? Don't let three festivals pass before you pay or deliver on your pledge. Okay, fine. But if you shall refrain from making vows, you will have no sin. Maybe it's better, the Torah says, to not make vows in the first place. Right? Belineder. Say, pledge something without a vow. Yeah, I'll try. Once you, once you commit, now you're on the hook. Observe and do what is emitted from your lips. That's exactly what it means. If you say something, make sure you do it. Just as you have pledged to the Lord your God as a donation which you have spoken with your mouth. So Rashi says, why it seems to repeat, this adds a positive commandment to pay one's vows in time to the aforementioned negative commandment, which is do not delay in paying it. So there's basically, with many mitzvot, you have the positive and the negative commandment within the same Mitzvah. So here we have a mitzvah of, well, what's the mitzvah? Is it do not delay in keeping your promise or is it deliver your promise on time? The answer is both. There's a negative commandment, thou shalt not delay, and a positive commandment, get it done on time in a timely fashion. So those are the two sides of the same coin. But again, you often have a positive and a negative within the same Mitzvah um, category. Okay, that was the reading number four, really for yesterday, and today is reading number five. Let's see, oh, very short reading. Perfect. We're right over here. Ch uh, Deuteronomy chapter 23, uh, verse 25. Yes. Quick question. Sure. <clears throat> Where it says, when you make a vow to Hashem, your God, you shall not be late in paying it. And it says, uh, the Rashi says, uh, not more than three, not right. beyond three. But we have Kol Nidre. So, Kol Nidre releases our vows. Good question. Good question. You know, there are many um, who use that against the Jews. Who said, ah, you Jews, you borrow and you don't repay. And it's even built into your liturgy. The holiest day of the year, you tell yourselves you're absolved from all your pledges and promises and debts. Unbelievable. So that's been used as an anti-Semitic trope throughout the, throughout the ages. It doesn't mean, you know, if you have an outstanding pledge, whatever, now you're off the hook. It means the spiritual vows, the stuff that we, you know, we tried, the, um, the commitments that we took, that we made an effort for, and we, we're not always 100%. It means that we should, it shouldn't be held against us constantly for not, for not being, you know, a perfect, perfect in that area. But when it comes to, you know, monetary stuff, yeah, I mean, pay it back. But isn't that vows to God only? The vows to people, you have to ask the person to forgive Yes, yes. yeah, for sure, 100%, yeah, yeah. And even with God, it doesn't mean like you just say whatever you want and then you just, you know, wash it away, etch a sketch it, you know. We have to be careful. We have to, we have to say what we mean and mean what we say. Once a year, we have the opportunity to... You know, kind of reset and and um, take more, take new commitments, and hopefully keep them. Yeah. 
All right, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25. When you enter your neighbor's vineyard, this is very important, as a worker, if you're working, not just randomly trespassing, if you enter your neighbor's vineyard with permission because you are working in the field or in the, in the vineyard, the Torah says you may eat as many grapes as you desire until you are sated. You're allowed to eat on the job. Lucille Ball in, what was that? What was the show? <laughs> What was the what was Lucille Ball in? I love Lucy. Remember on the assembly line, she's eating the chocolates or whatever. Yes, yes. Okay, yes, yes. so that's kosher. You're allowed to eat as many grapes as you desire until you're sated, but you shall not put any into your vessel. No to-go bags. Imagine you're working in the field and you're like, "All right, let me just take this box of goodies to go." By the way, at a wedding, at a bar mitzvah. There's an understanding, you're allowed to take some. At the JLI retreat, right? As Mark can attest to, you're allowed to take some to your room to go. It's not a problem. Yeah? You're allowed to take some to go. The point is, and as Donna also can attest to, etc. So the point is that you can eat there, but you can't take it to go when you're in your neighbor's vineyard working. Next, same thing, when you enter your neighbor's standing grain, you may pick the ears with your hand, but you shall not lift a sickle upon your neighbor's standing grain. Don't start pulling out the machinery and the tools to like maximize the yield. Just whatever you get, you get, and that's it. By the way, it's like the Coca-Cola. It's like the world of Coca-Cola in, in Atlanta. You go on the tour, and at the end, they give you a bottle of Coke. Okay. They, they used to, by the way. I was there recently with my kids. They don't give it anymore. I don't know why. You, have to, you could buy it in the gift shop for like three bucks. Okay, it is what it is. But back in the day, they used to give out a bottle of Coke at yes. the end of the tour. Imagine you say, you know what? Thank you very much for the bottle of Coke, but I'll actually take uh, 12 for my family and friends. They'll tell you not, no, not, nothing happening. You, you can have one for you because you toured and that's it. So if you're working in the field, you can eat while you're working, but not. Uh, this is not a to-go situation. Don't bring out the tools and start you know, maximizing it. it it's for the, for the interim. This becomes a powerful lesson in life. We are working in God's field, right? God has a garden that we're tending. There are weeds that we have to pull out. There are good things, beautiful things that we need to plant. We need to put in good things, take out the bad things, do a mitzvah, puts in something good, refraining from negativity, pulls out a weed. That's our job. We're gardeners. Get the overalls ready. Kabbalah teaches us, Hasidus teaches us, you and I, we are gardeners. And like the field workers, I know garden, field, whatever, but like the workers of the field, while we're here, we can eat and collect. We can enjoy while we're here in the field of God. But, don't put it in a bag. You know what that means? You can't take it with you. It's not only a, it's not only a warning, like don't take it with you, but really it's a statement of truth, a sobering statement. You can't take it with you. So, stop packing the bags of stuff might as well focus on the work and making a difference in, in the vineyard, in the field, and not so much on what I'm taking to go because how far can you really take it? Anyway, something to think about. Ray, jump in. Um, don't the workers have to leave the four corners of the field? Isn't that called gleaning for the poor people that come out? And yes, collect? yes. There is a mitzvah to leave the corners. It's, called, it's actually peah. It's called peah, like the peahs. Oh, cool. Peah, yeah, the corners. 
to, to leave it. And also the gleanings, right? If something falls, you have to leave it. If you forget something, you have to leave it in the field for the poor. And this is a beautiful mitzvah that the workers of the field themselves can eat, but you can't take it with you. And it's a lesson for life as well. All right. Yes. Yeah. Rashi says you can eat your fill, but not a gross eating. In other words, overeating. Right. And there's also put on it says also that's Bava Matsya says that. Yeah. So that that's the meaning of not taking your sickle. In other words, it's not it's don't sit down with a knife and a fork and start going at the at the food here. But you can eat while you're working, while you're okay. Let's which is also, by the way, could be a spiritual message. Right? Let's not indulge in, you know, we're allowed to enjoy life, but that doesn't have to be over the top. Okay, we'll save that for um, special occasions. Let's continue the over the top part. Simcha, Shabbos, Yom Tov, you're to go over the top. Let's go uh, Deuteronomy chapter 24, and this is, once again, circling back to the laws of Gittin, the laws of divorce. When a man takes a wife and is intimate with her, and it happens that she does not find favor in his eyes, because he discovers in her an unseemly moral matter, and he writes for her a bill of divorce, that's the get, and places it into her hand and sends her away from his house, mm. and it's all, it's all part of one continuum, right? Because we've already talked about the laws of divorce before, but this is like if a husband and wife are married, and then they divorce, and she leaves his house and goes and marries another man. So you're with me on this? She gets remarried. Now, if the latter husband hates her and wishes, that's a harsh word, but no, they don't get along, and writes her a bill of divorce as well and places it into her hand and sends her away from his house, or if the latter husband who took her as wife dies, here's the whole point of this. There's literally one big idea here that we're trying to say. So again, but if a woman is divorced and remarries, and the second husband either divorces her or dies. They get divorced or he dies. Then listen, here's, the, here's the, the payoff. Her first husband, who had sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. That's the point. The point is, look, let me pause here for a moment. If a couple is married and get divorced, they can remarry, 100%. Not a problem. But if she has already remarried, and then something happens to that marriage, she's no longer permitted to remarry the first guy. Would want to. Uh, uh, hold on one second, one second. I'm going to give you an insight on this. Why not? Since she was defiled to him, for that is an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin into the land the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So defiled, abomination, what does that mean? So some explain it as follows. A man, you know, Torah has strict laws that a woman cannot have more than one husband, etc. Imagine if, I'll just give you a scenario. Imagine if the wife wants to be with somebody else. But not to divorce, not to not be with the husband, but also with somebody else. So imagine they come up with an idea, with a scheme. It says, we'll officially divorce. Then you'll be with another guy. So it's not out of, it's not adultery, right? It's not violating. And then after you're done over there, then you'll come back. The Torah says, nope, can't happen. Doesn't happen like that. No scenario like that. And as a byproduct, essentially, and I'm, I'm not saying that's the only rationale for it, but that's a, in the commentaries, that's one angle on this. And, and I hope what I'm trying to say makes sense without going too deeply into this, right? Without, you know, 
uh, spelling it out too much, but the Torah says basically scenarios like that are not uh, won't be allowed because then you won't be back allowed to the first hus- to, to the husband. That that couple won't be able to get back together if something happened in the interim. Fine. So that's that's that. But even if that wasn't deliberate, nonetheless, once she remarries, that first that first marriage, the possibility for that couple to get together is no no longer exists. Okay, that's that's the Torah law. Um, okay, so what are the messages? You know, this we talk about spiritual parallels. I guess in this case there wouldn't be a spiritual parallel. You know, if we're faithful to God and then we go elsewhere, God always takes us back, right? Even if we pledge allegiance to another spirit, God forbid, to another spouse spiritually, right? I'm not talking about physically, spiritually. For example, without, you know, getting into, I saw recently there were some, some, his name was in the news and I'm, I'm not at all commenting on that and I'm, I, I just saw it very peripherally, so... My apologies if there's some more developments that I don't know about. But Bob Dylan, yeah, Bob Dylan. What was his name? Zimmerman? Yeah, Robert Zimmerman. Um, A nice Jewish boy who at some point converted out of the faith. And then he came back to Judaism. One of the rabbis instrumental in his Jewish return was Rabbi Manus Friedman, who we've we've had before. He spoke many times at Intown Jewish Academy and even maybe a year and a half ago on... Gimel Tamos in 2020, we had a, a, a virtual event with him. So Rabbi Manus Freeman was close with him, and both from Minnesota. Rabbi Manus, well, Manus Freeman lived in Minnesota, ran a yeshiva for women in Minnesota. Anyway, um, but um, Bob Dylan was asking, does he need to convert back to Judaism? You know what the answer is? No. No, 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 I'm sorry. Let me explain. You don't have to convert back to Judaism because you've never converted out of Judaism. You might have thought that you did, but legally you can't actually convert out of Judaism. It's like you can't actually convert out of your family. I mean, you can legally, maybe in U.S. law, you know, whatever, you know, take action to get another um, guardian or that sort of thing. But you can't actually biologically undo biology. It is what it is. Judaism, Jewish identity, spiritual DNA, you can't undo that. So somebody says, you know, I'm no longer this, that, or the other. Okay, sure, sure, no problem. That's what you think, but really you're still Jewish. So the answer is that somebody who converts out of the faith, who so-called converts out of the faith, doesn't need to convert back in the faith because they never actually convert out of the faith because it doesn't actually hold. That conversion doesn't hold. So, Rabbi, so we're also an ethnic group as well as a religious group. I get, you know, it's always complicated. Is it a race, ethnicity, religion? I, know, I, was, I, know. I don't have, that's a good, yeah, I'm, I'm always like a little like, I think we're a little bit of everything. It's like there's, there's not one race and ethnicity. I, I don't know. It's complicated. It's a spiritual ethnicity. I don't know. I don't know if that's a thing. I don't know if that's one of the check boxes that we can check. You know, what the. But it's like, yeah, it's like an amalgam of a few different things. But getting back to the point, look, you know, we have our husband, so to speak. We have our spouse, and then at some point we might, God forbid, God forbid, but we might say, you know what, I'm finding something else. 
unlike the mitzvah here in our Torah portion, we're always welcome back to God. And, oh, you know what? Maybe it does fit. It does fit. Because there was never a divorce. That's the point. There was never a divorce. That's the point. So in the physical case, one second, give me a second. In the physical case, when there's a real divorce and a real remarriage, and, and she marries someone else, then you can't go back. But in our case, spiritually, what's the, what's the vart? The idea is you, never convert, you can never break that connection. And thus, the second marriage was not a marriage. It might have been a fling or whatever it is, but it wasn't, it wasn't a thing. It wasn't a marriage that would violate the original thing. And thus, we can always go back. Now, it doesn't mean that we should start looking for other things and then whatever with that, with that whole intention in mind. But it means if it were to happen, God forbid, God is always waiting with open arms. Our relationship is always ready to go, ready to, ready to resume. Mark, jump in. I heard a speaker at Chabad in town. Uh, I believe his last name was Friedman. I believe, I'm not certain, it's V. Friedman. Oh, yeah, it's V, yeah. But he told a story where someone came to the Rebbe, and I'm doing as best I can for it by memory. Yeah. And it was uh, the father of someone, and, he's, and I think it was either his son had either uh, rejected the faith or he was homosexual. I forget what it was. And he hasn't been a Jew. Uh, and... Uh, What's the story? And the Rebbe told him, if you take a flint and you drop it into the ocean and it goes to the bottom of the sea and someday, sometime later, who knows how many years, someone brings that flint to the surface. That flint can still be struck against a stone and it can still make a fire. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's about, I, I don't remember the context either, but that, that, that lesson is super powerful. The idea that it's never, you know, we never truly lose our, our core identity and, and, and our ability to, to shine with that spark. Good. The fire can never be extinguished. That's the bottom line. The Jewish flame can never be extinguished. It's not like a coal that you drop in water and it's done. Now you're not going to, that coal, is, you're not going to be able to light that coal again. Not happening. The Flintstone is different. All right. Wilma! All right, my friends, what a, what a great way to end DPP with a little 80s, yes. 80s cartoon action. Meet George Jetson. All right. Um, good. Great to see everybody. Um, I want to wish you all a wonderful day. Tomorrow we're back on. Tonight we're not on. Uh, next week, please God, we have a bunch of uh, new stuff happening. Film screenings, 60 days, Torah studies, etc. And we're starting to really ramp up or amp up, depending on whatever is the right word, um, our offerings as we get ready for the new year. So join us. Stay tuned for more fun and excitement and uh, lots of blessings and peace. To everybody. All right. Hey, um, Ray, sorry, what was the question? Number of your house address to come get the, the, the DVD. Oh, oh, okay. I'll, let me, I'll call you. Let me give that to you offline. Sure, thank you. I'll call you right now. All right. Okay. See you guys. Take care, everybody. Bye, Sarah, Mark, Sandrine, Donna, and Ray. Take care, everybody. Yes, yes. I'll let him know that everyone's... Uh, Sending good wishes. Yes. See you soon. Please. All right, take care.